HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. Look for their newest line, Pristine, the only complete line of pet food made with responsibly sourced ingredients. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org slash pets. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tunes. Night. Life, fire, storms, night, life, fire, storms, night, life, fire, storms, night, life, fire, storms. Live. 
Welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Darren Bresnitz. We are here with Joseph Santano, uh, who I know for me was one of the first chefs that I heard about when I was living in New York, who was doing something different in the LA scene. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, guys. Um, arguably, I would say um, you are one of the biggest culinary champions in the new era of the LA dining scene. Um, not from LA, but definitely adopted a hometown. What drew you here originally, and, and why have you been a champion for so long? Um, I worked in New York, and that's where I basically started my early career. Got was able to work in a lot of like the incredible uh, gastronomic temples, like Le Cote Basque, La Celebrité, Danielle when it was on the Upper East Side, Bong, and um, there was just a shift of when. I had established kind of the foundation in cooking that I was uh, striving to get exposed to. I wanted to head out west because that's where all the ingredients that we were getting um, were coming from California. Follow the ingredients. And um, after about six years, I moved out to San Francisco and was able to get a job with Charles at Charles Knob Hill with Ron Siegel. And that's when it was like, because that's in in New York. It was about learning classic technique and and building that foundation, and then moving to California was about simplicity and keeping the ingredients as natural as possible, and uh, just having the absolute best ingredients for uh, maximum flavor. Yeah, I mean that was also the argument of you know San Francisco or California versus New York was that New York was always like, well, yeah, I mean if we could just put the best fig on a plate we would have a competition as well, but we know how to like turn that fig into eight different dishes. Right. <laughs> um, so you have a new cookbook that just came out as well, um, Baco, Vivid Recipes from the Heart of Los Angeles. And I mean, it reads very much like a love letter to the city and to downtown LA and to your restaurants. Um, what made you want to include the name of the city in the title? I think we were, I mean, so I was in San Francisco, and it was just kind of the next. I didn't. I, I had been to L.A. when I was like twelve or thirteen, sure. visiting my aunt and uncle, and um, and I didn't think I would ever end up in L.A. I thought it was like going to be San Francisco, sure. in that area. And I moved down to L.A., and um, it wasn't. This was like two thousand, like four, and L.A. was a very different food scene back then. Oh yeah, I, I mean, mean, it wasn't even. A consideration for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, it was. I mean, you had the pioneers that like made. Sure, you had your, your those, wolf gangs and things. Those like were that. really more for the expense account diner. Right. And and then we were, I mean, LA is so blessed with so many like diverse cultural um, restaurants, but there was like a very kind of division between like high and low. Mm-hmm. There wasn't like this middle ground. So when I moved. From Manresa down here, I thought, oh, I'm going to do fine dining. And then I was like, that's not going to happen. <laughs> and then I was like, well, no one's going to hire me at these other restaurants. So in, in a sense, it's like I had started over. But what I'd realized was that L.A. was kind of an open canvas, um, like a blank canvas. And uh, and it was really just trying to figure out. It's, I, I think uh, I started working at a my first restaurant in Los Angeles, because I was at Aubergine in Newport for the first year, um, was at Maison G, and that was short-lived. 
but then I took over a chef position at Opus in mm -hmm. Koreatown and was really trying to figure out like, I'd spent the last 15 years trying to develop my style and, and work with the best chefs, but I was like really trying to do a tasting menu. I had a, a, a three course, like a three course menu for 30 bucks. That was the, that was and, the era of the tasting menu and, in, those, in that, that time. And it was, but during that process, I started to realize that there was this whole demographic that like wanted, this was like pre, this was when Chowhound was like the only oh like God. source. You know what? This was I love I love Chowhound. <laughs> like it was, you could, you knew that because it was like so weird. Like anyone who would take the time to actually be on that message board really loved food. Yeah. Like and really, and not like someone who's like, I'm a Yelper or something like exactly. that. Like, it was like people were like. Okay, I guess you and a bunch of random people are going to write about restaurants in the tiniest towns in the corners of America. Right. But it was great. Yeah, and and so it was. I what I started to realize was that LA had this tremendous like mid-level demographic that wanted to eat like uh, interesting, delicious, but it like affordable type dining, and and I was doing the tasting menu. I had an a la carte menu. And it was the same time that Baco had started kind of working like under the radar. It was like for uh, just friends and just VIPs that we would kind of make it for. And um, and so it all started like brewing in this pot. And, um, and so I knew that my next step was going to be to like do a, a restaurant that was going to be completely... Uh, price point accessible but interesting and uh, and to do that we start cooking a lot of offals and um, and just trying to do like smaller type dishes everything started going small plates because mm -hmm. that was like the best way to experience a lot of flavors and a lot of types of dishes but still keep it at a, at a price point I mean you could spend as little or as much as you want and, and go big and um, so that was the time when I finally actually got to travel. And that's kind of where, in the book, I, um, I didn't travel till I was almost like 38. And so everything that I had learned up to this point was uh, either in the kitchens that I worked all over the country, or it was through books. And it was really my only escape. Yeah. And, and so I started imagining what these sauces and flavors and and like tasted like just from reading ingredients and not really having experienced them yeah um now just to go back a little bit before we get into the the start of uh baco marquette is uh you grew up with in san antonio yes and a very mixed family heritage from all over yes uh, my mom's side from guanajuato and puebla and uh and then her dad was, uh, they were from Ireland and, and Poland and everyone kind of was uh, settled in northern Mexico. On my dad's side, it was Spanish, French. Everybody was having good life <laughs> living in northern Mexico. And then the Mexican Re Revolution happened. Yeah. And then everyone who, I mean, they were all like pretty prosperous in the sense that they all had homes and little businesses and bakeries and little restaurants. And then everything was wiped out. So my whole family on both sides lost everything, moved to San Antonio to get away from the revolution and basically 
started over and rebuilding and and uh, doing what they were doing. And that's kind of where like the Tex-Mex, uh, like the only thing authentic about uh, Tex-Mex is that it's not authentic. Yeah, <laughs> but it's amazing. Absolutely. I mean, and, it's... But it's... Like it's inauthentic and it's in like a postmodern way that makes it authentic. But it's because so many amazing cultures like kind of come together, making what they know, turning it in with the ingredients that are available, which became Tex-Mex. I mean, your family cooked a lot, right? Or your your dad was a butcher, your grandparents owned a grocery store. so So you were around food growing up. Yeah, I mean, on my dad's side, we they had supermarkets. I was, like, really young, and I was able to... I mean, I still have memories of, like, the ranch dinners, and they had, like... They would cook cabrito, like, in the ground, and had giant barbecue pits, and, and I mean, I remember just, like, giant porterhouses and ribeyes and, and beef ribs, like, uh, being smoked. Mm. And I mean, it was, like... I mean, now, when I, like, think back on it, it's like, Jeez, I wish I would have like really. Like, I know you take, but all I wanted was Doritos and Big Red and like, sure. and like all the, the the crap that we were growing up with, like in the eighties. Yeah, um, you're like, oh wait, home cooked meal or Cool Ranch? <laughs> mm. No, no, no question. Um, so you stayed in Texas for a while too, right? You went to college in Austin. Yeah, I was. Uh, I was, I left San Antonio. Was in Austin. Got a job at like a cheesesteak restaurant. Got my big Wait, break. which Texadelphia? Texadelphia. Uh, yeah, no Texadelphia. I lived, I lived in Austin. I well, am from Philly, and I was like, okay, Guadalupe. Yeah, that's yeah. the one I worked at. I, yeah. I remember I started as a dishwasher, and I got my big break because the sandwich cook cut his finger off one night, and I got promoted to Boom. prep. And um, is that is that when like it all started though? Like, did you get behind the kitchen, and a lot of things started making sense? Well, it worked with my lifestyle. I was following the Grateful Dead. I right. was like going to school in between semesters. I'd go on tour. Um, that was the agreement that I had with my parents. So I was able to do like the, the winter tour because it let out right around the time. And, and it was like being on tour and like starving, but then like having a bagel for the first time with cream cheese and like mm. onion sprouts and tomato was like a revelation. And and when I came back from tour, I started working in uh, at Mother's Cafe and oh, yeah. like a vegetarian restaurant, and 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 that's kind of when that was like my first dish because I started. I'd always wanted. I was always trying to like come up with stuff, and I remember they gave me a shot at my first dish. It was a red wine risotto, and um, but no one told me you had to pre cook it. So I was like making them all to order, <laughs> and it was like you're a total like my, shit. You're show. like my hand's gonna fall off, and I'm super deep in the weeds. <laughs> I mean, I had like five pans with risotto going on from like, and I mean, it was only like like a couple of friends who came and ordered it, but I was like in the in the the shits. <laughs> but but it was but that's kind of when I was like I want to move to New York, and um, and I and I'd only known about like kind of. Mark Miller and Southwestern cuisine. Sure, didn't know anything about French food, and um, and then I got like a chance to uh, like just work for free at Danielle. And um, how did and that happen? How did you go from making red wine risotto at a vegetarian? I mean, I did. I went to CIA and got, got like uh, uh, I just went and walked in and asked if I could stage, and I guess they'd had some people who had like either just finished or been fired or murdered or, and, and was abused pretty 
heavily there, but uh, was it the classic just like everything you think of of getting yelled at and like oh, breaking yeah. you down? I mean, that was like, I mean, I remember uh, there was the uh, it was it was a like a, a the chef de partie uh, who was French who thought it would be funny. Uh, to give me like two cases of duck bones that were like partially frozen and um, uh, and, and a cleaver and I remember I think it's still why I have carpal tunnel in this, my left elbow <laughs> but <laughs> it's uh, at least that's where it started and and having and told me that I needed to do this in like X amount of time and I was like rushing but I was literally covered in blood because it was like like just constant oh splat and I remember just being yelled at and humiliated and um just having to keep going and uh and they wouldn't give me another apron because they i had to show like what a slob uh prep cook i was oh my god um but there was like no way to not get dirty yeah <laughs> um but it also that was part of the lessons um so well we're gonna take a quick break and we're gonna come back and talk about uh the the rise of Baca Marquette and the other restaurants and the cookbook uh, with Joseph Santano uh, here on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Here is a song from our archives. Enjoy.
Uh, welcome back to Snacky Tunes. So, Joseph, um, you're in L.A. You're at Opus making, uh, playing around with fine dining menus, but also doing the Baco on the side. And then you wound up at Lazy Ox, which um, I know was one of the first L.A. restaurants that I got really excited about when I was living in New York. What did you start to see as a shift? Um, and then what started to make you want to start going out on your own, open up your first restaurant? I mean, I, I, I'd been, I'd always wanted to be in downtown. I mean, coming from major cities, New York, San Francisco, um, I was always gravitating towards being in uh, downtown LA. It was like edgy. It was like, it had that grittiness that like feels real. Can you explain to people what, what downtown LA was like six, seven years ago? Because it's, I mean, it's different now. Like, well, we'll go like 10 years ago you probably wouldn't be downtown after dark. Right. If you left your car overnight, it may or may not have wheels or may or may not be there <laughs> or be on cinder blocks. Right. Six years ago, it was like improving. Um, I mean, there were, uh, my landlord, Tom Gilmore, opened up uh, on 4th and Main um, and started like, like all the artists start coming down. Sure. It was like have like a lot of galleries and and that's usually kind of the the, the 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 beginning cuz uh the artists always know where the cool affordable places are and then once restaurants start showing up that's when everything starts to gel. Um I mean I definitely saw Lizzy Ox and 100% uh Baco as um one of those restaurants that begins to change the area. Um what was it like and planting your flag there and what did you do to help grow the area and change the area beyond just the restaurant? I mean, I, I think, I mean, the way I was looking at it is I just wanted to be cooking. I wanted to cook on my own terms. I opened Lazy Ox with a different, or with the, the owner um, and had carte blanche on the menu. So it was like really just like going all out. Uh, every day was like, 20, 30 items on the chalkboard. It was crazy. It was um, crazy how many. It was almost like seeing how how many dishes can we do and pull off, and, <laughs> and and just to be like, like fuck yeah, this is what we're doing, right? Um, and and then I was introduced to the landlord at Fourth and Main, uh, Tom, and he I was telling him what I wanted to do, and and he was like had opened up. The restaurants that were on that corner because he owned the, the three buildings and and he put restaurants there for his tenants but he wasn't a restaurant person sure and, and didn't really want to deal with it anymore and uh gave me a shot um i didn't have like any money really i had a, a handful of investors that were that i had met at lazy ox and they uh were supportive and were like let's do it and um and so i opened up like a year and a half after I opened Lazy Ox, and then it was just gonna be like Baco, like sandwich, fast casual. And, but I designed it for full liquor and like, a, I didn't design it for fast casual. Sure. For like the first week, it was like a total shit show. We like, people were coming up to the bar trying to order, and it's like, we were like making zero money because you, they would order like a, a sandwich and a drink and, uh, and then no one would go back because who wants to go back in line after you've already ordered? Right. And so I was like, well, fuck this. We got to like go <laughs> full restaurant. 
and have servers and, and go that route. Otherwise, we're not even going to make it in like six months. And, um, and everything fell apart with Lazy Ox owners and me. And then I just, the next day, I just went full-blown menu. And it was like the same situation that we were, were kind of doing, but I was like, I started going more vegetables, like heavy vegetables on a menu. Um, having Baco, it, I mean, was the premise, but really like it was just... Can you explain to people what Baco is for those who are not familiar? Baco just kind of started out as like uh, like a late night snack. It was uh, a flatbread mm-hmm. that I like worked on and tweaked and changed over the years. But it just was like after service, everyone's drinking, sure. just a, like a super nosh food. And um, and I remember we were all sitting around at the bar and someone's like, you got to make a restaurant out of this. And I just kind of laughed like whatever. And 10 years later, it's like, have a restaurant. <laughs> it's the, the name of the cookbook. Um, so. You know, we've always felt that um, once you sort of land on a signature dish, you can sort of build... And like a culinary empire around it. Some people, it's meatballs. For some people, it's tacos. But with the Baco being the center of the first restaurant, uh, you really like established yourself with that. But then you expanded, and you've ha- now have five restaurants in as many years, more or less. Yeah, um, we, it was three and a half years. We opened four. So what made you? And they're all different. Um, and we could talk about something, but you have Bar Ama, you have or- Orson Winston, which is your fine dining, Ludlow, and then PYT, which we had a very nice dinner at last night, awesome. um, which I have to say was probably the first like meat-free Friday night dinner I've had in a long time, and it was incredible. Awesome. Um, but what made you want to not open so many restaurants, but literally like within walking distance of each other and completely different concepts? Well, it... it First, it was opportunity. I think I'd been working for like the past 20 years um, for free or very little money. <laughs> um, I finally got a chance to open my first restaurant. I uh, hit it off with the landlord who believed in me. Um, he had three more spaces that he wanted a re- a, like a chef to, to take over. Um, I. I had always wanted to do a Tex-Mex or Mexican-based restaurant since that's the food I grew up with. Um, I wanted to get back to that fine dining model that I had like learned everything in, um, but really kind of turn that inside out and make it more accessible. Um, um, and then Baco like really was the restaurant that encapsulated everything that I love to eat and everything that I'm being exposed to. I mean, I think in this, uh, what I've never wanted to be is like a Spanish restaurant or an Italian restaurant or like, right. Like everything is like constantly evolving. I'm constantly evolving, getting exposed to different, uh, flavors and cultures and like just even with my cooks and my team and everyone is like, like exposed or has ideas or has eaten or grown up eating different things with their families and and everyone has something to offer and and that like shapes the way that I look at food in the world and um and so Baco was like the incubator for like all these flavors 
And after when when I had the opportunity to open uh, Barma, I started extracting the flavors that were like Mexican inspired and um, and started like really kind of focusing on on those, but still taking the same sort of spirit that I that that runs Baco and 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 not having to be exclusively like Mexican or Tex-Mex, but the the baseline was that, but still like going like heavy vegetables and yeah. and tying in like the vegan and vegetarian that I grew up with the type of Mexican cooking the like like at the vegetarian restaurant in Austin and um, so that gave me also there was just like a lot of play with like the type of uh, uh, like my take on Tex-Mex and uh, and I remember like people were like well this isn't SoCal Mexican or this isn't authentic and and it's always like I said the only thing authentic about Tex-Mex is that it's not authentic right you, it, you can and, do whatever you want and I mean in reality Tex-Mex doesn't have a tremendous amount of vegetables except for guacamole and salsa right so the fact that I was had 15 to 20 items at any one point that were vegetable based um, that's what was like fun and um, and then I opened Orson Winston nine months later, which is crazy, and, by the way, to open uh, up a new restaurant. So well, it was like either it was it was like raising a kid, like like let's just get him, let's just get him yeah, all going, was, and then like but like it'll be crazy for a few years, and then there'll be like toddlers and adults before we know it. Yeah, it was like it was insane. Everybody thought I was crazy, but it was like we were we were at a point when like the rents were like super low it was like i just saw this as an opportunity to just get in early um because because now i have these like jerk offs from they they look at downtown now as like assets which i right. think is like <laughs> kind of like disgusting yeah and and in a way of like taking the heart and soul out of because it's like then it was like the gold rush right like Everybody started coming down, and they didn't know anything about LA, and they just looked at assets, which I think <laughs> is like crazy. And um, and then they approached me like, "Oh, we want you to move to South Park. I'll give you a deal. I'll give you six dollars a square foot." I'm like, "Well, you can sit on this." <laughs> <laughs> so, but I knew that was going to happen. Right. And so, and so I was able right. to get in at really good price just because we were like in the beginning, and I was like. I mean, I'm just gonna go for it. I only live once. I'm still sort of young. You're young. And so on top of all of that, on having the five restaurants, you decided to write a cookbook, which is not an easy endeavor. Um, and even though it has Baco in the title, it is sort of a love letter uh, and to not LA itself, but all the restaurants you have. Um, so what made you want to put out a cookbook now? Well, I. I wanted to just start kind of documenting uh, like the recipes and what was going on downtown. Um, Betty Halleck, uh, uh, she's my partner and fiance and uh, best friend. And we had been talking about doing a book and it was like, it was just the timing. We just had, we knew it was going to take like two to three years. Yeah. And, um, it was like, we just, we got either like do it now or it's going to pass. And, um, and we just started, we, we met the right, 
a person to to get it going, and um, we we got the deal with Chronicle, and and they were super supportive, and uh, we got a double book deal, and with Barmod, it's in the works nice. as we speak. Does the second one get easier? I, I it does and it doesn't because now that we know so much more about the process yeah. there's so much more we want to do sure and um but i think i remember like the first uh when we first started working on recipes i mean we didn't want it to be a baka mercat cookbook we wanted to just be baka was more like the idea of flavor mm-hmm. yeah and what drives all the restaurants because we wanted to kind of encapsulate all the restaurants um and 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 kind of just really it was like a preliminary book to explain the way that I taste because the way, I mean, the way that I train all of my, my cooks and is that they, I have to train them to taste the way that I taste in order for me to like trust them. Right. It's, it's, it's all by feel. It's all, I mean, ingredients are always different. It's not a really a recipe you can follow. It has to be by taste and, and intuition and, uh, and, and by feel. And, um, and I wanted the book to, that's what I wanted to come across to the home cook and is, uh, so I gave Betty the first 20 recipes and she like handed them back and she's like, no one's going to be able to make any of this. Too chefy, just too like. It was, it was just like because we have this incredible pantry and right. I have like all these sauces and I, it's like, and and we wanted a book that was beautiful, which it is. Um, Dylan and Jenny did like an amazing job. We wanted a book that you could read the words. We wanted a book that could be a coffee table book, but I also wanted a book that would hopefully be uh, dog-eared and oil stained. And 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 it was getting use, um, and it's also about building a different type of pantry, um, yeah. and like getting people because you have different spices, you uh, different ways for people to make their own blends and things like that. I mean, it tells a very interesting story through flavor. Yeah, and we wanted. I mean, a lot of these, a, a lot of these base sauces were sauces of places I'd never been to, and was imagining like what they taste like and then finally when i did start traveling and 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 getting out there i realized that they didn't really taste like the traditional ones <laughs> but that was okay because they tasted the way that i taste and the way that i like mine were much more acidic on some sauces and where they were sweeter on other sauces i mean in the more traditional way did you change any of the stuff once you had the traditional did you change your base recipes or did you keep them the same once i experienced Mm -hmm. i think it was well no not really because i'd already like this was the way that i think it should taste right but it was just a good point of reference because i had no point of reference for any of a lot of these sauces um and and that's where it's like i think a lot of people get the book i mean I, th- I think the the public is much much more educated and has simply based on just the access to information that people have. I mean, when 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 I was coming up, it was like there wasn't Instagram, there was barely internet. 
You said, I mean, I didn't yeah. even have a even smartphone have, until like no. 2011. You couldn't even dial up Chowhound when you were. Yeah, dead. I mean, it was like you either had a desktop or yeah. it was like. So. I mean, fancy food so, growing up was French food. There was no idea, the idea yeah. of eating Ethiopian food or eating Central Mexican food or like anything like that. And, 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 the, and, and a lot of the books available, I mean, a lot of my books were like sketches of the food. Yeah. Or like really bad photos. Or, or just text only. Or text I mean, only. Yeah. And that was like what we had. Now, it, I mean, I think the information is like, it's almost like uh, people are so desensitized because it's... It's almost like some people don't even have to go to restaurants anymore because they've seen it on Instagram or they've like... I know. That they've already like... It's almost like they've already had the dish. Oh, I don't need to eat that because I've seen it. Um, but they just need something. So, yeah. So it's like... It's, 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 it's kind of funny. But... Um, but the book tells a beautiful story and it shows how you filtered uh, all those different influences into a very delicious point of view. Well, cool. Um, well, thank you for your time. Uh, if people want to get the book, where can they get it? Um, you can. There's a link to our website. You can get it on um, Omnivore Books. Uh, you can get it uh, Barnes and Noble, like any of the bookstores that are still around. You can get it on <laughs> Amazon. Amazon. <laughs> the, the last, the last retailer. Um, um, the last bookstore has it in downtown LA, yeah, which is great. like an amazing that place is great. Uh, book temple. And any of the restaurants, right? And we have them at all the restaurants. And if they want to follow you or anyone on Instagram, just where could they find you online? Uh, chef Joseph Centeno. Awesome. Well, Chef, I appreciate it. Congratulations on everything. Uh, we have another song from the archives and then a live performance here on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Enjoy. Cover me and drag my bones. My lover told me I was headed home. Where'd you go? I gathered all your favorite things. I told you I felt nothing. I was headed home. Where'd you go? How long? Can you keep this up out far to feel anything? I know you had to go and knew you had to. I know you think it's bad for you. I think it's bad for me. My mouth is full of cotton. My mind is rotten. I walk on nails every day just to keep bad thoughts away. The nights. Are getting harder to fight I smother my pride I hope you might be hoping that I might It's easy for you, it's easy for you I don't have the drugs to keep me quiet Quiet It's easy for you, it's easy for you I don't have the drugs to keep me quiet Quiet How long? Can you keep this up out far? Do you feel anything? I know you had to go, I know you had to, I know you think it's bad for you, I think it's bad for me.
episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. You put a lot of care and thought into what you eat. After all, you're a food radio listener. That thoughtfulness goes hand in paw with how you feed your pets. Purposeful pet food doesn't happen by accident. Castor and Pollux scours the earth to carefully select the best organic and responsibly sourced ingredients. New Pristine from Castor and Pollux is the only complete line of pet food made with ingredients that are responsibly raised, caught, or grown. Feed your dog or cat the new standard, like grass-fed beef, wild-caught fish, and vegetables grown without synthetic fertilizers or chemical pesticides. Pristine from Castor and Pollux. Purposeful pet food. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org pets. Welcome back. That was just XNY, who was on the show a number of years ago and brought Darren Ribs. They are now Tommy, who played elsewhere on Friday Night Who I Saw, Where the Wants, who are sitting across from me, opened on Halloween. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hey. Thanks for having us. Of course. Shout out to Rami, Jake, Pop Gun Guys, and all the radness of elsewhere. It's like still less than a week old. Yeah. It's amazing. And their programming is only going to get better because they're, they're up and running now and it's killer. I mean, the already hall. the first season, I don't even know what you call it, window, booking window, booking season, yeah. schedule, yeah. yeah, is incredible. It's the, the, the promotional flyer, so you read it in the bar and you're like, damn, holy shit, gotta yeah. come back then, and, oh, damn, next night. Yeah, next, yeah. <laughs> that's the type of thing where you're, you'll read it in December and you'll be like, shit, I can't believe I missed all that. Yeah. <laughs> like Dave Harrington's Christmas party's gonna be there, uh, Bodega's playing there, it's gonna be it's pretty rad. Yeah. And they somehow captured like all the different vibes of the shutdown venues of like 285 Kent and Glasslands and Cameo and all that stuff and it's all just kind of there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're forging their own community, I think. It's yeah. like it's a wide-ranging you know, type of programming from yeah, DIY and then they're looking to Queens for, for some hip-hop acts and stuff too. So I think it's going to involve something really cool. That's amazing. And Rami's been a big... The reason why you're here is because I always hit Rami up like twice a year. I was like, who who am I not thinking about? And he always sends me a list. So 
Grimstreaker, Umlans. So shout out to Rami for being a good, yeah. good friend and supporter. Mm. Uh, one of the things that you sent me this week that stuck with me is you talk about a fear of making art in 2017. I want to <laughs> start there. What is this fear or possible fear that exists within the world? Um, I think we are more often than not sort of confined to uh, our own sort of sides in the world. I think um, people are unable to actually sort of say what it is, uh, to speak candidly, as I'm doing so eloquently right now. <laughs> um, I think uh, one of the main issues uh, in 2017 is that it's a very sort of charged and polarized time in our nation and how we view art making as well. Um, and more often than not, I think people feel as though it's harder and harder to speak candidly and openly um, with one another in a way that actually facilitates a genuine dialogue. And too often we feel sort of paralyzed or trapped to certain stump speeches of what side we're on. And rather than sort of reaching out beyond those and really trying to interact with the people around us, more often than not, we either say things that have no substance or uh, safe substance. And I think it's important to be comfortable with being vulnerable and putting yourself in a position that might, in the end, um, not... Uh, that might make you have to learn a little bit more about yourself and being willing to kind of um, fail <laughs> and and um, but it but also sort of get better from that and I think too often than not people sort of either sort of say the same things back to one another in a very sort of cute and similar way or um, and sort of say what it is that we sort of know is acceptable in our own groups and uh, don't really sort of go outside of those groups to really genuinely have a conversation about things that are important to us. So what role do you feel music and art can play in encouraging discourse? Well, for one, it's a space where people um, traditionally and um, continually get together and enjoy themselves and let go of the day or their stress and dance or listen and enjoy each other's company and perhaps even speak with one another. Um, maybe not so much in the communities I'm in about difficult subjects, which I think is what Lydia is speaking about. And um, that's what we led to reach out to you about uh, devoting this show to like a moment of reflection for um, not only this paralysis, but also how the, there's literal violence occurring in this space. There's so many different types of assault on the the congregation of, of humans in peaceful ways, I think, right now. And um, I don't wish to say that this sort of intellectual paralysis of people feeling fear speaking with one another is the same thing as violence whatsoever but i think both of those are deeply affecting 
people, d- democracy ultimately. People need to feel comfortable to share, yeah. share with one another. So and it, yeah. It's a disruption in a space that's meant to uh, bring people together and be a freeing uh, universal sort of area of, and it's, and these violent, uh, violent attacks um, sort of give it, instill a fear of sort of being with people and present. So you're saying the violence can lead to people not joining together or not being able to come together to be able to have those conversations? I, yeah, I think that's certainly, um, I would say, stop and say that yeah. we don't necessarily <laughs> have that fear. Yeah. And we're part of a you know, community that is supportive of just having fun and spending time with one another. But I think we are starting to acknowledge the possibility of a future where this is a new a new thing that's that's gonna get worse possibly and it's it's coming in tandem with some other some other realities so i think want to acknowledge it that um it comes from a lot of issues in the united states it's but it's happening globally too and in europe um thinking of las vegas manchester and paris and orlando uh, the sort of specific events we're thinking are are involved in concert celebration with with teenagers in at Ariana Grande concerts or people from the gay community um in Orlando or um country music fans like it's a really a wide swath of humanity now that's that's enduring that and and then again that relates to different conversations that would be had in all those environments and those conversations should be had peacefully. Like that's the best way people can be having conversations is peacefully enjoying art in mm-hmm. a public space. So that's just like, if we can facilitate that at all, and that's, that's our reason for today wanting to reflect just on this is like, if we can just acknowledge that this is a really important thing and we are just participating in democracy by being peaceful artists, I think that you know might go unsaid sometimes you know well it's interesting the i mean so many people that i know and myself included that if they didn't have concerts or going to shows or art openings when they were younger i think that i know at least for my life would have been a life very different and probably not as enriching or even possibly lost because they're like oh i like music and then you show up and you're like these people like music Maybe I'll go talk to them if I can get up the confidence and not be like a weird teenager. <laughs> um, and it's an interesting point that is being disruptive. Those avenues get cut off to people when they're still being formative or being able to see new people or find people that are creative or outcasts or not being able to find their way into society except through something that's as intangible or tangible as going to a, a concert. Yeah. And it's, it's hard enough sort of figuring out who you are um, in general. And I think there are too many things uh, in sort of the times that we're living in that are sort of pushing us more and more into ourselves and um, sort of physically and metaphysically in terms of how people sort of tell us to interact with the world. In a weird way, that comes Here, with yeah. a curiosity of what is around the corner with technology to bring people together. Like... I don't know, maybe 
a somewhat dystopian vision is that people can't they can't make public concerts as safe virtual virtual reality technology needs to like substitute people's space together it, I, I just feel like there'll be some new way that humans find like the opportunity to connect with one another and and that's to be seen like how music will express itself in the future and then that's its relationship with technology it might even be a new art form or something at some point but a lot of things are coming to a head about uh, um, this the safety and, and freedom of participating in public spaces I think so can we hear a song sure <laughs> a song. what are you gonna play for us first um, we're working on a record right now and we're, the song's called Delicious Greed. And, uh, yeah, it's thematically <laughs> in the world we're, we're getting to. Yeah. Here we go, The Wants Live on Snacky Tunes. talk about creating a safe space and an area to have discourse through your art how are you encouraging that with your fans and local artistic community to have those difficult conversations and not being afraid of being able to be say the first wrong thing Whew. and that's tough that was sort of a 
a challenge to ourselves today to just be like, let's make what we talk about on this show this issue because we feel this, um, you know, challenge paralysis ourselves. So let's push ourselves beyond that. And, you know, in the context of today, I'd say that there's a lot more benefit concerts happening. But, you know, musicians, we don't make really any money doing what it is that we're doing. Maybe some cab fare occasionally, but we're... Some free beers. Yeah. <laughs> Pizza, uh, today. So, yeah. Pizza today. Pizza today. Pizza uh, today. Um, and that's, in a way, that's liberating because it's so much about what you care about as a person that is the reason that you're doing it. And, and clearly that it has to be music now. And I uh, know that a lot of people in our, I guess you call it like the DIY community, are really devoted to having a shift in this new... Um, era we are in. Um, we did a great one for Make the Road New York, which is um, a Latin American focused, like immigration policy focused community center in Bushwick that has done work. I think they started their own school. They but they just do great like work right here in our neighborhood. And there was a lot of Puerto Rico benefits. We made like. 1500 bucks with Juan Waters at Alphaville. I think that having these benefit concerts is encouraging people to come see live music and they'll, they'll pay because they, they know it's going to something good. And just researching, um, having the, the group on the ground be inspired by sharing positivity and playing music. So it's like, we, you know, two, two birds kind of thing. We can do what it is we know how to do. So, you know, clearly we're not like, you know, in in the, the government yeah. making momentous no, tries yeah. or something, but we're um, do it, trying, you know, to to change our attitude. It also shows how the community can support it. I mean, $1,500 in the scope of things probably doesn't seem like that much, but when you hear that there's, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 of these benefits going around all over the country or or the world, if it's more of a global issue, it, it does add up. It's like a little, just a little bit at a time, and it and oddly stacks in a way. Certainly, yeah. And, I, and, it, and it's another starting point. Um, and in a weird way, I think our generation just isn't, um, we weren't taught how to be activists necessarily. It wasn't part of at least my upbringing. So being in New York has been where I've learned a lot more, just to, you know, act up here the incredible movements that have happened here are really there's a lot of mentors in this city for those sorts of things so we're just kind of like teaching ourselves how to get active you know what is or what if you can't feel like sharing some of the mistakes that you've made by entering into this world or some misconceptions that you had that might be hard to talk about (laughs) I'll I'll let you go first Lydia um uh (laughs) I think uh, it's. I think I definitely have too often have um, stopped, you know, again, like moments like this where it's like you want to um, be direct and uh, articulate in a way that sometimes doesn't come to you naturally. <laughs> and I think um, I've also been called out for, uh, I think. We all have generally sort of similar sentiments, but the nuances in between those 
are different. And so rather than having like an actual conversation about something, I've definitely been called out by my peers for saying uh, things that like, well, are truthful and important things to acknowledge more often than not are sort of just echoes of acceptable um, uh, ideas or ideas that feel safe or sort of the generally agreed upon um, sort of prefab things that you should say when certain things come out without being willing to actually um, sort of go into the darkness a little bit more. Um, darkness is like, I guess, uh, not like sort of a negative space, but um, just being more candid about certain nuances and not being afraid to sort of discuss those and like what's actually going on instead of just sort of saying what feels like people want to hear. It's, okay. it's it's such a journey to to like train ourselves to not react emotionally yeah. to someone who has a different opinion than you on a subject. And I feel that's why I had some time to think about my things I've done wrong <laughs> and I think thinking I was right uh, in was the biggest one and being self-righteous about certain sentiments and I I really I'm like learning to listen and seek um, guidance from people who, you know, as musicians, we it's we're in a in a world of it's just a different can become a fantasy world at at some points. I think that's really really important actually to like have whimsy and dream and wonder. But like sometimes you do have to reach out to grounded people participating in the tough stuff. Mm-hmm. And that goes for, that goes for anybody. It goes for people in activism too. So just being like, I'm not going to listen to your opinion because I have mine. You know, like I there's this great uh, book, the the Righteous Mind, um, why good people uh, argue over politics and religion. That re- it's such a cheesy bestseller book, but it really. I love that this. I can't remember the professor's name. This NYU professor was like, I studied. I, you know, was a liberal professor, and I went over the all over the world trying to figure out like why are people conservative. I, and then I, you know, I actually figured it out. And here's like the complexity of it, and trying to understand, you know, when you're in New York, how someone can have such a crazy different perspective is fascinating to me now. And I don't want to just like, you know, hate that person. I don't want to hate anybody or think anyone's evil. I think that's bad. You know. Yeah. It's bad for my mental health too to be like full of anger towards people I don't understand, you know. I think yeah, one of the bigger mistakes too is just not trying something. Um like all even if like certain ideas haven't sort of worked out or you think of sort of risks you've taken it we've taken as a project, um past and present, I think I don't regret those failures any in any way. I think it's like, oh sure. If I could go back and make that perfect, I would. But I think the biggest regret is just not trying something or going for something. And that is different. Can we hear another song? Yeah. Yeah. What are you going to play for us? Well, this one's called Las Vegas, and we wrote it for this specific show today. And I'd love to talk about sort of themes and journey of that after as well.
So, Thanks. great. Please discuss. So uh, I think that, w- that was uh, meant to be sort of a sonic mapping of the effect of uh, sort of these acts of violence sort of in these spaces. So, uh, Well, for one, um, we're just trying something as a yeah. band where we're pushing ourselves to break out of our routines and sort of sat down or like what happens on these on these days when these these massacres occur and 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 like researched it and then composed like a narrative that we felt we could create a song around and then allow the music to inform that journey yeah, so, so there are five parts to the song um, the first part is supposed to sort of echo like a basic pop structure, uh, and as a ba- and and the bass sort of that's supposed to be really sort of hitting on it as a direct downbeat. And um, we sort of looked to uh, different sort of pop songs to figure out sort of pleasing melodies in a way, and it sort of represents kind of the communal space uh, before the attacks. Um, uh, and then the second movement is an off-kilter sort of disruption of that pop structure. Um, and there's a switch to sort of more of a dissonant element, more syncopation. Uh, and then the third uh, movement is just sort of totally dissonant and erratic. I don't know if you want to take over. Yeah. yeah, just the chord progression disintegrates into just a, a wonky tone that's try to make something psychedelic that I, uh, I don't know the unfathomable emotion of fear and trying to get to that journey from being like in the sort of a joyous bopping situation mm-hmm. that seems like such a chasm of, of shift and um, one thing that really started settled me about reading all this these about all these events is that everyone thought it was firecrackers. Everyone thinks like dangerous situation is firecrackers. And only after a while like that, we wanted to creep that in and be like, this is horrible. And then you end up in something that sounds and, and feels nothing like where you started. And then you have to get back to where, you know, the world we have. And, um, I think media is, doing a terrible job of of I guess I don't mean to sound like Trump but the media is terrible <laughs> like, it's, well I think it's not, the polarized sort of nature of the conversation too it's it's making sense of the chaos and then um, and there's the genuine hurt and grief but then there's also the politics of how we speak about things and how different way we wanted to leave that yeah. really dissonant uh, gook that happens in that emotional time and let that feed through once the beat returns yeah, and so. the the song slowly rebuilds itself and life gets back and ultimately just ends where yeah. it started. Yeah. There you go. Those are the last two sections of the song. <laughs> I think that is a good place to end since we're going to get one more song in. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for, for pushing things here. Yeah. This was great. Where can people find you? Where can they come see you, get a hold of you, come follow your upcoming recordings, all the good stuff? Um, right now, we have Facebook, 
and we're the want. We have no, we have no music out yet, but we play shows all all the darn time, and we're, we'll have a LP shortly. So please come check for events. We're we're always sending on Oh My Rockness, a really wonderful site. Mm-hmm. Shares local music. So yeah. Uh, this next one is, uh, I'm going to read the Walt Whitman uh, poem, What Compost? And it's, um, I think, applicable because he likes to use nature to sort of make sense of grief and loss and uh, reconcile sort of the trauma of having witnessed different deaths during the Civil War. And he also is someone who is like exuberantly obsessed with the universality of time and life and existence and that connection. Great. Well, big thank you to Joseph Sateno, uh, who was our chef today. And thank you to the Wants. And congratulations to the Elsewhere crew, just because... Yeah, because they're the best. They're the best. <laughs> and in a time of kind of darkness and all the things, it's really great to see a new community center open up. Yeah. So shout out to those guys. Yeah, they're yeah. doing it right. They're doing it right for all the right reasons. Kudos to them. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Snacky Tunes. Here we go. Something startles me where I thought I was safest. Something. Something startles me where I thought I was safest. I withdraw from the still woods I loved. I will not go now onto the pastures to walk. I will not strip the clothes from my body to meet my lover, the sea. I will not touch my flesh to the earth as to other flesh to renew me. To renew me. does not sicken? How can you be alive, you gross of spring? How can you furnish health, you blood of herbs, roots, orchards, grain? And not continually putting distempered corpses within you? It's not every continent worked over and over with sour dead. Why have you disposed of their carcasses? As drunkards and gluttons of so many generations, where have you drawn off all the foul liquid and meat? I don't see any of it upon you today. Perhaps I'm deceived. I'll run a furrow with my plow. Press my spade through the sod and turn it up underneath. I'm sure I shall expose some of the foul meat. Behold this compost, behold it well. Perhaps every mite has once formed part of a sick person, yet behold. The grass of the spring covers the prairies. The bean bursts noiselessly through the mold in the garden. The delicate spear of the onion pierces upwards. The apple buds cluster together on the apple branches. The resurrection of wheat appears with the pale visage out of its graves. The tinge awakes over the willow tree and the mulberry tree. The he-birds curl 
mornings and evenings while the sheepbirds sit on their nests. The young of poultry break through the hatched eggs. The newborn of animals appear. The calf is dropped from the cow. The colt from the mare out of the little hill faithfully rises the green potatoes, dark green leaves. Out of the hill rises the yellow maize stalk. The lilacs bloom in the dooryards. Summer growth is innocent and disdainful above all the strata of sour dead. Chemistry. Chemistry. That the winds are really not infectious. That there is no cheat, this transparent green wash of the sea, which is so amorous after me. That is safe to allow it to lick my naked body all over with its tongues. That it will not endanger me with the fevers that have deposited themselves in it. That all is clean forever and forever. The cool drink from the well tastes so good. The blackberries are so flavorous and juicy. That the fruits of the apple orchard and of the orange orchard, that melons, grapes, peaches, plums, will none of them poison me? That when I recline on the grass, I do not catch any disease. Though probably every spear of grass rises out of what was once a catching disease. What was once a catching disease. Now, I'm terrified at the earth. Is that calm and patient? It grows such sweet things out of such corruptions. Harmless and stainless on its axis. It turns harmless and stainless on its axis. It turns harmless and stainless on its axis. Such endless successions of diseased corpses. It distills such exquisite winds out of such infused feeder. such unwitting looks it's prodigal annual sumptuous crops gives me such divine materials to men and accepts such leavings from them at last something startles me where I thought I was safest something startles me where I thought I was safest talk about food we talk about music with musical dudes finger on the pulse snacky tunes thanks for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please 
join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.